DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. You're listening to Nothing Funny About Money. I'm Matt Gorin. And I'm Michael Thomas. We're in the financial planning program at the University of Georgia. On today's episode, we're talking about sticking to the plan. And sticking to the plan is what financial planners are all about. Absolutely. When you think of financial planning, sometimes we put so much emphasis on the numbers, the math behind it. But the psychology of financial planning is just as, if not more, important. And honestly, a lot of people don't draw that connection. But here in our financial planning program, we do, which is actually one of the reasons why I chose to come to the University of Georgia. And we can model financial planning with something that all of us do at the beginning of every year. New Year's resolutions. And speaking of New Year's resolutions, do you know the top three commitments most people make? Losing weight is number one for sure. I'm even trying to shed a few pounds. Yeah, that's a no-brainer. How about the next two? Smoking. Yeah, quitting smoking is number two based on the Statistic Brain website. I hope financial wellness is third at least on the list. And you are in luck. It is third. That's a huge relief, dude. Well, here's the bad news. Oh, boy. Are you sure you want to hear this? Dude, shoot it to me straight. Only one in 10 people felt they were successful in keeping their resolution. Said another way, nine out of 10 people don't. Okay, Mr. Debbie Danner, but keep in mind that feel is the operative word. All right, you're right. Feelings are not the most objective measure of tracking success. I get it. Exactly. Someone could have made significant strides in improving their financial well-being, but they don't see it that way. Do you have a good example for our listeners? Here's one. A 2016 study found that nearly 60% of Americans don't even have $1,000 saved for an unexpected emergency. So if you set out to save $1,500, but were only able to save $1,000... You're doing better than 60% of Americans. All right, I get your point. That's a huge win. Yeah, but you wouldn't feel that way if you're not aware of all the norms when it comes to other people and their finances. So I'm hearing that being aware of our feelings and why we feel the way we feel is important when it comes to sticking to our plans or commitments. Exactly. Awareness matters. That reminds me of a money article I recently read on uh, credit score averages. Oh, why bother? Credit scores should not be the main thing. (laughs) We get that, Matt. We get that. But a lot of our listeners are concerned about their scores. Well, if you are concerned about your score, you might want to listen to our episode on, you guessed it, credit scores. All right. So let's say you're a college student. Okay. And your financial resolution last year was to increase your credit score from 650 to say 700. Okay. All right. So by year's end, you were only able to get your score up to 680. Oh, what a loser. That's exactly how you might feel because you did not hit the 700 mark. But if framed differently, your credit score is nearly 30 points higher than others in your age group and on par with the average of those between the ages of 30 and 49. And you're way better off than you were before. Exactly. When it comes to sticking to the plan, awareness of our feelings and being anchored to the right information matters. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people out there that feel as if they haven't made any meaningful progress when, in fact, they have. And that's why we invited Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, a behavioral finance expert, onto the show. She's the author of Breaking Money Silence, and she helps financial advisors help their clients understand the psychology of their money decisions. Can't wait to hear it.
Kathleen, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here today. And we are excited to have you. You have a background in personal finance and psychology, but that's kind of an odd match, right? What does psychology actually have to do with managing money? Well, you know, it's interesting. It it is an odd mix, but it's a perfect mix in that um, often we talk about personal finance from a technical standpoint, you know, the skills, the knowledge we need to have. But there's such a big emotional component when we're talking about managing money or investing money or saving, spending money, or even talking about money. So the two are very connected, and I think that's where the field of uh, behavioral finance came from and certainly uh, the work that you and I do to blend those two worlds. So it's, it's actually a lot of fun once you get into it. All right, and we, we were dealing with this a lot last week. We're recording this in mid-February following the most volatile week in the stock market in many years. So how did you see emotion come into play there? Well, I tend to do a lot of work with financial advisors, so more of the train-the-trainer model. So I was getting some questions from advisors about how to handle uh, emotional conversations. And I, I think what's interesting is when the stock market goes up and down, obviously we have emotional reactions to that. And it really depends on how much you're paying attention to the day-to-day, how much it's going to impact you emotionally. And I just think what we all need to keep in mind, you know, myself included, as well as the advisors that I work with, is that you know if you've made a rational plan when things are calm and you're thinking about your long-term goals, that nothing's changed with a market shift that is often temporary. It makes a lot of sense, Matt, right? That you'd have a, maybe a fight-or-flight response or you'd feel a little panicky uh, and want to you know, get out of the stock market when things aren't looking so good, as they certainly um, have not recently. Um, but it's really about staying the course. And that's where I think working with uh, an advisor or somebody who can kind of coach you who's not emotionally involved uh, in your investing really makes a lot of sense. All right. So the idea is if the stock market drops as much as it did, I think 10% over a few days, people, what, they panic? Yeah. I mean, of course you are because you're seeing a paper loss. You're not seeing a real loss, but you're seeing a paper loss. If you're closer to retirement or you're in retirement and you're relying on those funds, that's going to feel threatening. And I think there's a way in which our brain processes the potential of losing money differently than it processes us gaining money. In fact, we feel the pain two and a half times more acutely than we feel the gain. And so it's it's normal and I think natural that you might have an emotional response to that, but it's whether you uh, react and act on that emotional response or whether you think to yourself, okay, um, what's my long-term strategy? If you have someone to to talk this through with, it's always helpful to talk it through with somebody and then start to look at if I stay the course and I don't just use emotions to make a decision, what decision would I make? And so I really encourage everybody to blend both your rational mind, right, Mm. as well as the emotional data you may be receiving. And with something like what recently happen that's so dramatic, you're going to want to stay the course and talk it through a little bit. Right. So let's piece that apart a little bit. So when you have an advisor who can be the rational side, that sounds to me like you're saying, suppress your emotions. Don't panic. Don't feel this way. Have someone else be rational for you. But now you're saying maybe blend the two. Be rational and be emotional. Yes. And so I can see where you would get the suppress the emotions. Um, But I never think it's a good idea to suppress emotions. I think it's really important to be aware of what we're feeling because that's emotional data. That's additional data that we have. Now think about it. If you go back to primitive times, right, if we were experiencing fight or flight responses or panicky fear 
fearful responses. Chances are we were experiencing those as a way to keep us safe. You know, all of a sudden we're looking a dinosaur in the eye. <laughs> so our body goes, run! Um, and so what ends up happening, unfortunately, I think sometimes, is when we um, tap into that primitive sense of fear, which we, it happens a lot with money and certainly can happen in the stock market, we think we need to run. And that's where, you know, we've evolved and that's where it's okay, my emotional responses run. I want to acknowledge that. I don't want to suppress it because it may come out in other you know, ways, uh, drinking too much, uh, over shopping, whatever it might be. But I want to acknowledge it. But I also want to balance that out with, okay, if I have a long-term investment strategy, if I have a financial plan, it, does it really make sense at this point with the market being so low to cash out? So in the investing world, maybe this balance is hard for some of our listeners to appreciate, I think especially younger people, because the advice is so often, do nothing, right. let it, leave it alone, right. so to be rational. But do you have another example maybe outside of investing where you really do see this blend of the emotional and the rational? I see it in a lot of different areas. In fact, um, one of the ways in which I see it uh, greatly, especially for someone who's a millennial, is negotiating your salary. I mean, think about any time you have to go into your boss and ask for money or you're interviewing and you need to negotiate salary and a benefits package. Um, often that becomes a very emotional conversation, or at least you feel emotional about the conversation, because often money and our salary gets tied up in our self-worth or our value, when in fact, uh, you know, a salary is actually being paid what, what, you know, we're worth in the market. So that's very logical, but that's not how it feels when you're negotiating a salary. So I think that comes up a lot. So it's being able to understand where your boss or where um, the company is coming from in terms of the salary that, and benefits they want to provide you, and then also being able to check in with yourself and say, well, how, how do I emotionally feel about that? If you're feeling um, it's unjust and you have a, a rational way of explaining that, then you can negotiate a higher salary. And it's important to be aware of both sides of that picture and try to make the wisest decision in the moment. All right. And so speaking of talking with each other, you also write a lot about couples and how couples can manage their money together. And in fact, you just released a new book called Breaking Money Silence. What is money silence? Money silence is that uncomfortable feeling that a majority of Americans get when it comes to talking about personal finances. It's about 44% of Americans would rather talk about death, dying, or politics than talk about personal finance. And so money silence involves not just the conversations around like dollars and cents, it also involves having a conversation with people in our lives that we care about, whether this is our partner, our aging parent, or our kids, that involves how we think and feel about money and its purpose in our lives. So when we don't engage in these conversations, as many of us do not, because of this discomfort, we often end up not being as financially fit or taking care of ourselves or the next generation as much as we potentially could. And do you have some advice for people who are trying to learn that skill? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the book, the reason I wrote it is I, I kind of got fed up with the fact that um, money was a taboo topic, and I would hear my girlfriends and I'd hear, you know, friends of mine, couples complaining about not talking about money. And then I would go out and I'd train advisors, and I'd hear advisors complaining about my clients don't want to talk about money. And I thought, time out. <laughs> we all need to learn to talk about money. And so in the book, I kind of take you through a process um, as a reader as to what you can do to break money silence in your life, depending on 
you know, how it affects you. But here are three things to just think about, right? So you're listening, you know, start to examine your beliefs about money talk. Were you raised to think it's rude or unnecessary to talk about money? Were you raised that it was okay to engage in a financial conversation? If so, who is it okay to talk to and, and who is maybe somebody you wouldn't want to talk to? And start to really get a sense of what are, what are my own attitudes about this? Because when we learn more about ourselves, Matt, then we're able to then in our relationships go, oh, okay, this is what I believe. What do you believe? And it's important to then dare to break money silence, which is step two, with someone in your life. Now, make sure you pick somebody who's going to be safe. You want to set yourself up for success. So if you have a very conflictual relationship with your parent around money, then you don't necessarily want to start there. And so by practicing engaging in a financial conversation, and a financial conversation can be this simple. It can be, hey, you know, I heard this guest on, you know, Nothing's Funny About Money podcast the other day, and she said we worry about talking about money. What do you think? So really to start the dialogue and break money silence in a way that's least threatening and then practice and work your way up to the more difficult conversations. Right on. And this is coming from the book Breaking Money Silence. There's a website, BreakingMoneySilence.com, and, and what else can people find on that site? On the site, you can download uh, a tip sheet, which basically are the guidelines to engage in a money conversation, so it kind of walks you through how you can do this um, in a way that's going to feel good for you and the other person you're engaged in a money conversation with. I also do my own podcast called Breaking Money Silence, and every episode we look at one money myth and we bust it wide open. So that's a lot of fun to listen to. And then, you know, from time to time, there's updates as to where I'm speaking or uh, doing book signings and things like that. So I hope that you've inspired somebody today to have this uh, conversation. Besides visiting your site, breakingmoneysilence.com, what else can they do? What's another next step? I would love for everyone who's listening to consider uh, joining what I'm calling the Breaking Money Silence Revolution. And basically what that means is that you would take one small action towards engaging in a financial conversation in your life. Because I believe if each and every one of us uh, breaks money silence and starts talking about finances, that we can find our voices, we can talk about finance, and no longer will we think, oh, the fact that I have feelings about money or uh, I'm upset about the stock market no longer will that be something that's taboo or something we're supposed to keep to ourselves, but instead it'll just be, you know, part of what we do. And I think if we're able to do that and break through the next couple of years, what we'll find is we'll all be financially healthier and happier. And so that's my ultimate goal. That sounds good. Join the revolution, everybody. Thank you, Kathleen, for joining us. Very happy to have you on the show. Thanks. It was a lot of fun to chat today, Matt. That was an amazing interview. Yeah, it was an honor to have Kathleen in the show. She's a real heavy hitter in the financial planning community. You know, I love that she emphasizes that emotional awareness, effective communication, and starting this process early with children are all very important factors when it comes to improving financial well-being. And we're only getting started. What do you mean? Did you know that U.S. companies spent $200 billion on marketing last year? Dude, I knew it was a lot, but not that much. After the break, we'll talk about sticking with your plan despite all these temptations. Support for Nothing Funny About Money comes from Elwood & Getz Financial Planning and Investments. As fee-only financial planners, they are fiduciaries to their clients. That's E-L-W-O-O-D-G-O-E-T-Z dot com. 
You're listening to Nothing Funny About Money on WUGA Athens. 91.7 and 94.5 FM. I'm Matt Gorin. And this is Michael Thomas. Visit us on campus at the Aspire Clinic. Or online at nothingfunnyaboutmoney.org. Support for Nothing Funny About Money comes from UGA's Department of Financial Planning, Housing, and Consumer Economics, providing teaching, research, and outreach to support families and communities' economic well-being. fhce.uga.edu. Do you remember when we were at the Financial Therapy Association Conference in San Diego and we, we stopped at that Spencer's gift shop? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, remember you came across that ring bottle opener you wanted? Yeah, that was really cool, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, and you had the money but I dared you to save 50 cents a month towards it to prove how much willpower you have. Yeah. Yeah, because you were saying that saving up for something like that wouldn't be that hard. All right, Matt, what's the point? I get where you go with this. Yeah, I just want to see how that's going. I'm in the whole $10. <laughs> that's, a, that's a $5. You're, you're negative 10? Dude, if you've ever had to save slowly and gradually to any type of amount, even $5, that's difficult. Plus... I have to admit, the Arby's Jamocha shakes aren't cheap. What? What? Yeah, I know. It's a bad habit. All right, okay. I'm not going to fault you for not sticking with your goal. We just need to find a way to make it more significant and meaningful for you. You'll do that for me? Yeah, what are friends for? Just start publicly shaming you. <laughs> anyway, our next guest, Danny Kofke. He's a special needs teacher. He's been a teacher for a very long time. And he's also been a financial literacy educator. He's written a book, The Wealthy Teacher, and he's got a message I think you should hear. Before we start the interview, do you mind if I get one more Jamocha shake? I'm going to act like you didn't say that. Danny, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Matt. Of course. Happy to have you here. You have a new book, The Wealthy Teacher. And no offense, but isn't that an oxymoron? Absolutely. Notice I did not say the millionaire teacher, right? Uh-oh. It says wealthy. Wealth is so subjective, and it kind of depends on what your view of wealth is. But I do feel like in my life, even though I'm living on a school teacher salary right now, about uh, $50,000 a year, my wife works part-time. If we go back years ago, I was a school teacher. My wife stayed at home for nine years, raised our two daughters, Ava and Ella. So we lived off $42,000 a year for that period of time. Wow. But as we stand right now, we have no debt except our mortgage, which actually on track to pay off in a couple of months. We invest, so we're going to retire with a sizable nest egg. Depend, I mean, it should be, unless, uh, sure. you know, we have zombie apocalypse. But, uh, but you know, it is. Um, we're just on track. But most importantly, and this is where wealth, I mean, some people say, oh, in order to be wealthy, you have to have a million dollars or you have to have this. I look at wealth as being able to pursue those things that you're passionate about and that you don't have to necessarily worry about how much it costs or how much it pays. And for me, you know, I enjoy being a teacher. And, you know, I left teaching for a little bit, but I was teaching others how to handle their money better. So I was still teaching, just not to students. And my wife, when she was a stay-at-home mom, she was passionate about being home with the kids. It paid nothing. I mean, we were losing money because she stayed at home. But we were able to pursue that. And even though, you know, our bank accounts are not very fat, I mean, we, we have enough, but compared to some other people, it isn't that much. But we're still able to do those things that we want that bring us, you know, joy in our lives. And I know people that make a million dollars a year, but they're miserable. They are absolutely miserable. They hate Monday through Friday, nine to five. They dread going to work. I don't care how much money you make, how much you have. If you're not enjoying what you're doing, to me, you're not wealthy. Right. So having this definition of wealth that includes this more holistic sense of wellness does seem to make people happier, increases their well-being. Does that also actually affect their finances? I think it can, but I think 
a lot of people, and this is where I kind of look at finances, where a lot of people, they focus on, you know, what they have or, you know, how, how big their house is or what kind of car they drive and those types of things. I tend to try to look at finances once again, going back to, are you enjoying what you're doing every day, but also kind of looking at your net worth. And too many people, they don't focus on the net worth, you know, your assets minus your liabilities. They focus on those other things. It's not fun paying a mortgage payment. I don't know if anyone likes to do it, but I always look at it. Anytime I'm paying that every single month, I'm increasing my net worth because I'm having more value in my house. And then eventually when it sells, I'm going to have more. So I try to look at it like that too. Whereas I think a lot of people, like I said, they focus on the wrong things when it comes to what is a good status symbol of money. Whereas when you read one of the best books ever on the millionaire next door, you know, it just shows what the average millionaire they drive. I think at that time it was like a Ford F-150. It was just nothing, you know, wasn't a BMW, wasn't a Mercedes. They didn't live in these outlandish homes. So I think it's just the definition of wealth that a lot of people People have gotten away from and they think it's, oh, you know, you have to have all these things. Whereas Warren Buffett is one of the wealthiest people alive and yet he still lives in the same house he bought yeah. 40 years ago Three in Nebraska. Bedroom. Right. Yep. And uh, even focusing on net worth in the traditional sense, it's, it, as you said, assets, what you own, minus liabilities, what you owe. I, I think that's also maybe missing a piece of the puzzle that you've already discussed. It's what we here at UGA, we call social capital or mm -hmm. human capital. These things that don't really lend themselves to a dollar sign but they enrich your social life or they enrich your, your personal life. Right. And that's what we're all seeking. You know, we're, we only have a short period down here, you know, in this time. We're all seeking to have meaning. And I think that's what most of us want in our lives. We want to have some sense of purpose and meaning. So to me, going back to the definition of wealth, I think when you're able to pursue those, those spiritual gifts, we've all been given certain spiritual gifts. And when you're able to pursue those, then to me, that is kind of what wealth is. And when you're able to, to I guess, love other people and just be kind to other people, that kind of encompasses what I feel that wealth is. Now, granted, having a lot of money in the bank helps, don't get me wrong, but it's not the end-all be-all that so right. many people make it out to be. Right. And you're speaking of purpose here, and so much of your career has focused on goals, helping people set them and reach them. Why are goals so important? Well, I think it was Zig Ziglar that said, if you aim for nothing, you'll hit it every time. And so it's so true. If you have no no goals in mind, it's really easy to go out and spend money and then end up broke. Now, for me, we have goals in place. We wanted Tracy to be able to stay at home, living off 42 grand a year. We had a huge mortgage, had car payments, had all these things. It would not be possible. So we had that goal in place and it made it easier to say no. I'm like anyone. Someone pulls up next to me in a brand new Beamer. Of course I want it. But then I ask myself, is it worth the sacrifice I'm going to have to make? Right. And so the Beamer, you maybe don't care about that. You have other goals you mm -hmm. care more about. When you're working with people, with your students or other people in these financial literacy programs, when they tell you some of these goals that they have, do you ever look at them and say, that's a terrible goal? This is a goal you shouldn't have? <sighs> I... Because it kind of speaks to, to their individual needs. So I don't necessarily think any goal is silly if it's important to them. However, you kind of have to look at a bigger picture. So some people that say, you know, I want this, well, then you're going to have to sacrifice some other things at the end. And I think that's where in our country, and it's advent of a lot of different things, but we're used to getting it all right now. And we want it right now. I don't care about the future ramifications of this decision. I'm going to do it right now. Right. And I think that is where when we set goals, then we at least we're working towards something, but then it helps us focus on, okay, well, I may have to say no to the latte today because I'm working towards this. 
it, it, Madison Avenue spends billions of dollars to get our money. So we're up against that. So if we don't have something powerful in place that we're saying, you know, no, I'm not going to do that because I'm working towards this, that's why we're broke. And that's why most right. of our country, 61% of Americans have less than $1,000 in savings. Oh, yeah. So, And part of what you said I think is important that it, it's maybe not saying, hey, that goal is dumb, but don't you have other goals in the future, and if you look at this short-term goal, you might be sacrificing that long-term goal. Right. So just telling people, focus on the future, yes. that that can help them reprioritize. And we're starting to get a little into the weeds of how do you help people set good goals. So do you have other tips for people who are struggling to meet those goals they set for themselves? Well, I say start small. I mean, especially now, I mean, most New Year's resolutions probably have already failed. Statistically speaking, we're, we're past them now. But I think that's the problem. Most people, they go into the New Year, oh, I'm going to lose weight this year. I'm going to do better with money. I'm going to spend more time, whatever it may be. But we have to break it down into short, shorter term goals so then we can see some progress. If you want to save money this year, that's great. But let's just say, I want to save $12,000 this year. Okay. Well, $12,000 a year is $1,000 a month, 250 bucks roughly a week. Sure. So when you have these small goals and you achieve it, it's like, oh, yes, I can do this. It's like losing weight. If you go on a diet and you lose two pounds the first week, three pounds the next week, another pound, you're motivated to keep on going. If that first week, you know, you don't lose anything, you're probably going to go buy a box of Krispy Kreme and say, oh, I'm done with this and I can't do it. I knew I would never be able to. And a lot of people do the same thing with money. Oh, right. Well, and so let's, let's talk about that. So let's say someone has this goal to use the numbers you had. They want to save $250 a week. Mm -hmm. And the first week happens and they're there, but the tire on the car blew yeah. out and some other emergency happens and now they, they're off target and they're off target maybe immediately. Isn't that right. frustrating? Absolutely. But that's going to happen. A lot of people say, I just have the worst luck and things go wrong. Well, listen, if you live in a house long enough, the roof's going to leak. If you drive a car long enough, it's going to need to be repaired. If you have kids, they're going to break something, whether in your house, on their body, whatever. It is called life. This past, I guess, two years, had a kid that broke their arm. We had to replace our HVAC unit. Garage door messed up. Had car repairs of a thousand bucks. But you know what? We had margin in place. So I simply wrote a check and moved on with my life. Didn't think about it because we had that in place. And that is why it's so important to do it. Yes, life happens to all of us, but you have to be prepared. Having an emergency fund, it turns what could be a catastrophe into an inconvenience instead. Right. And, and what you're doing here, I mean, even as you're talking, uh, this is what psychologists call reappraisal. And I'm going to win bonus points for saying that because it, it seems to work really well for people. That you, One way you can look at these catastrophes is I'm off track for my goals, my life is ruined. But then you say, well, no, I was prepared and I'm a good parent. I'm a good person. I'm a good saver. And that makes this experience way less frustrating. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these lessons, a lot of these conversations extended in the book, the Wealthy Teacher. You can find more online at wealthyteacher.weebly.com. And what else is on that site? I have an accompanying ebook with this book. So if you fill out the contact form, I'll send it to you for free. It's titled uh, Ways to Save Over $30,000 This Year. There's something in there for everyone that they can do. And I, one, and I'll just, here's a freebie for you. Um, recently, I just renegotiated the auto insurance and the homeowner's insurance. And I would recommend, if you haven't done that in a couple of years, shop around. We saved $1,500 just by spending 30 minutes on the phone. Wow, not bad. Okay, so that again is wealthyteacher.weebly.com. Fill out the contact form, get the free tips. Danny, thank you so much for being on our show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. You know what, Matt? I did need to hear that interview as well as so many of our listeners. What stood out to you the most? There, actually, there's so much, but I really enjoyed that Danny was honest about where he is financially 
and what he has been able to do with what he has. Uh, as Kathleen mentioned in the first half of the episode, it's important that we have open and honest dialogues about money. That's a great takeaway. There are so many people who heard these interviews and called a second wind or decided to stop putting off their own journey towards financial wellness. Either way, I'm excited for all of our listeners. And while you're on that journey, remember to make a plan. Set realistic goals to stay the course and ignore all the temptations. Ooh, I just received a coupon for half off on my next Jamocha milkshake. Oh, Michael, come on. All right. I mean, I'm going to delete it right now, Matt. All right. Much better. Moving right along here. Our listeners may or may not know this, but Governor Nathan Deal proclaims April as Financial Literacy Month in the state of Georgia. And I guess now would be a good time, since you've listened to this episode, to unsubscribe to tempting text messages and commit to or recommit to improving your financial well-being. And doing that comes with so many benefits. Less stress. Improved relationships. Better quality of life. Greater productivity. And one of our favorites, increased charitable giving. Yeah, this list can go on and on, but it's important to know that once you get started, you have to keep going. Stick to the plan, baby. Now might be a good time to check in with your financial planner. And if you don't have a financial planner, find an accredited financial counselor or financial coach by Googling find an AFC or visit the Aspire Clinic on the UGA campus. No matter what you do, there's a wealth of information and resources available to you. And as you know, we're here to help. Is that it? That's it. We want to thank our special guests. Kathleen Burns Kingsbury and Danny Kofke. They did an amazing job. And as always, special thanks to our executive producer, Chris Shoup, and our audio engineer, Garrett Burke. And thank you for listening. Until next time, peace. You've been listening to Nothing Funny About Money. I'm Matt Gorin. And I'm Michael Thomas. This program is made possible by the College of Family and Consumer Sciences at the University of Georgia in cooperation with WUGA. For more information about our program, visit us online at nothingfunnyaboutmoney.org. Or need help? Get it. Visit us on campus at the Aspire Clinic. Thanks for listening.